Psalm 125. Let me read this psalm. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Uh, A couple weeks ago, after one of the church services, uh, one of uh, the members of our church uh, said, hey, can I, uh, I'm talking to him, he said, can I ask you a question? He said, it's a question I've been wanting to ask one of the pastors here. And I said, oh, okay, go for it. And he said, so here's my question. He says, when I look around the world, it seems to me that so often the bad people get away with everything. And it seems like they do really well, and they, they prosper, and they succeed. And people who are trying to follow the Lord and follow Christ and do His will, it seems like they don't always do so well. And he said, that bothers me, and sometimes I wish God would just come here and straighten things out and give everyone what they deserved. And he said, is that unchristian of me to think that? <laughs> he said, I thought, yeah, that's a really good question and a really honest question. Uh, perhaps some of us here have, have felt that way from, from time to time. Maybe you feel that way sometimes when you, if you ever do kind of follow politics a little bit, and it seems like, uh, you know, so, so many politicians, they, they seem like they're corrupt, and, and it's all about money, and it's all about power and privilege, and then they have all these shenanigans, and they somehow get off the hook, and they keep making money and keep staying in power, and, and you just think, man, it, you, you know, they never, justice never seems to happen. Even the good people who go to Washington, so often they get corrupted there. And it is frustrating. Like, they just get away with it, and they live large, and they live this huge life, and those of us who who live under them are just trying to eke out a living and do the right thing, and it just seems not fair and not right. Or maybe uh, you get that feeling if you follow kind of pop culture, and you see who the, the stars are and who are the people who are making news, the actors and the, the artists and the musicians and, um, uh, you know, the directors and the movie stars. And, and so often, you know, they, they, they live these outrageous lives of, of immorality, you know, things that, that we would never want our, our families to emulate. And, and it just gets blasted out through the culture, and it shapes the culture, and it shapes values. And it's sort of more, the more outrageous they are, the more famous they get, and the more contracts they have, and, and the more movies and music they make. And you just think, wow, this, this, is, this stinks. God, are, are you watching TV, God? Are, are you listening to the music? Are, do you hear this and see this? And, and they make millions and millions. And we just think, God, it doesn't seem right. Or maybe for you, it's not even such a, a kind of big cultural thing. Perhaps just in your personal life right now, there is somebody who seems to be on top. Uh, maybe someone you work with or live with or know, and, and they, they seem to be going well, and things are going well for them, and they're doing well, and yet they're very godless people, and, and they want nothing to do with the Lord and nothing to do with His Word. You know, God, why do they always seem to come out so well? It just doesn't seem right. 
Well, Psalm 125 is a meditation on this dilemma. And and more than that, really, what Psalm 125 is, is it's a model for us as Christians on what we should do when we find ourselves in that very common situation where it seems that the wicked are on top and the righteous are on the bottom, where it seems that the godless are up and God's people are down. And this, this dilemma that, that God's people have wrestled with for centuries, it occurs often in the Scriptures. It's something that we experience. Psalm 125 gives us a way of thinking about that. Because if you look at Psalm 125, that the problem seems to be, the situation seems to be, that the psalmist was writing in a time when the, the wicked were in charge. You know, you look at verse 3, that the scepter of the wicked will not remain. So, so there's this sense that, that the scepter of the wicked is there, that the rule of the wicked is over Jerusalem, and the psalmist knows this isn't going to be this way forever. He, he believes that. We don't know what was going on in Israel when the psalm was written. It could have been that there was a foreign power there that was uh, worshiping idols and some godless nation was over them. Or perhaps even more likely, it could have been a time in Israel's history where one of their kings was evil. You know, if you look at the history of Israel's kings, they weren't always godly followers. Sometimes they they worshiped idols, and they were very godless, and they led the whole nation into oppression and immorality and and disregarding God's laws. And and so it could be it was a time when one of those bad kings was reigning in Jerusalem. Uh, We we don't know, but, but Psalm 125 shows us the way forward. When we're frustrated and discouraged, that it seems like those who disregard God are always up, and those who want to follow Him are always down. And what do we do in those times? What do we do? The answer is kind of simple, but still profound. Our calling in those times is to trust the Lord and continue doing good, regardless of what the outcome is for us in the immediate present in our society. We have to keep trusting the Lord and keep doing good. Look at Psalm 125. It starts off, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but endures forever. Those who trust in the Lord are calling that the fundamental characteristic of, of us as Christians is that we need to be people who trust in the Lord. That, that when things are frustrating, when things are murky, when it doesn't seem like the world is working as it ought, we... we at that moment, are called to trust even more in the Lord, to put our confidence in Him. Uh, When it seems like crime pays, when it seems like immorality pays, when when it seems like being ruthless and heavy-handed and evil is the way up, and, and that seems to be how the world is working, that's when we really have to trust God. And what is it that those who trust God are like, who trust the Lord are like? Well, that's what verses 1 and 2 want to show us. And and here we have this imagery of mountains. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people both now and forevermore. It's, It's wonderful imagery of mountains. Because, you know, you might look at those who trust in the Lord in our society 
uh, especially these days. And you might think, you know, those who trust in the Lord are like chumps. Those who trust in the Lord are kind of suckers. Those who trust in the Lord are, are, are foolish. Why would you do that? That's not the way to survive today. But the psalmist says, no, 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 no. Those who trust in the Lord are not suckers. Those who trust in the Lord are like, what? Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but endures forever. Mount Zion is that, that mountain, that hill on which Jerusalem was built. And so, so Mount Zion became kind of a, a synonym for the city of Jerusalem. And, and so the psalmist is saying it's like Mount Zion. And there may be wicked people ruling, and there may be evil people in charge for a time, but that Mount Zion cannot be shaken. It endures forever. Those who trust in the Lord endure forever. You know, in contrast to verse 3, the scepter of the wicked will not will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. So yeah, you know, bad people, they come and go, and they build their cities, and they build their monuments, and they build their towers to themselves. But, but you know, towers come and towers go, and cities rise and cities fall, but the mountain underneath it will still be there a thousand years from now. God's people who trust Him endure forever. So the psalmist is encouraging us to take the long view. Are you frustrated when it seems like bad people always get ahead? Well, you've got to take a kind of eternal perspective on this. This is a very short-term dilemma. Forever it will be God's people enduring because they trust in the God who endures forever. Or here's what else God's people are like. Are they chumps? Are they fools? No, no, no. Those who trust in the Lord... They endure forever. Or verse 2, here's the mountains again, but now the mountain imagery shifts. It says in verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people both now and forevermore. So, so now instead of us being like the mountain, now God is like the mountains and we're like Jerusalem. So, so if you were to travel to Jerusalem today, uh, you would find yourself not down on the plains by the ocean, you'd find yourself up in the mountains. Jerusalem is up in the mountains, and Jerusalem is not only up on a mountain, but it's surrounded by mountains that are higher than it, like the Mount of Olives. So, so if you stood and looked at Jerusalem, you would see mountains all around. You could look around and see these pow- towering peaks. And, and what a beautiful image that is of, of the way God surrounds His people and protects them. And, and so even when it seems that God's people are kind of helpless and trodden underfoot, and following Jesus and keeping His law makes, makes the other kids at school think that you're, you're weird or a loser, and, and it kind of following Jesus takes you down the social ladder at school or, or takes you down whatever the ladder is. The psalmist says, no, 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 no. God is surrounding you and protecting you. I don't know, I was trying to imagine this psalm, verses 1 and 2, and again, this is a psalm of ascent, right? So it's one of those psalms that they would sing as they were traveling up to Jerusalem for the festivals. And, and I was trying to imagine the person writing this psalm and just using my, my uh, uh, sanctified imagination to try to think about what it would be like to be a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem. And here's how I imagine this pilgrim. He finally gets to Jerusalem, and there he sees the city. Maybe he's up on the Mount of Olives like Jesus was, looking down over Jerusalem. And he has mixed feelings. On the one hand, He's really excited. Ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's the temple of God. There's the city of God. There's the people of God. He's so excited. But then he's really bummed too because he's like, but ah, the king of Jerusalem right now is such a reprobate. He worships Baal. 
He worships the stars and the moon. He practices sorcery. He's an evil king who's, who's corrupt and, and violent and, and full of bloodshed in the city. The moral condition of the city has really deteriorated under this king. And yet I'm here in Jerusalem, and yet it's ruled by such evil. Ah, what do I do with that? And he's sitting there looking at Jerusalem, and then he sees the mountain on which it is, and, and he thinks, you know, though, those who trust in the Lord, I know there's still some people in Jerusalem who trust in the Lord. They're like Mount Zion. This king will come and this king will go, but God's people who trust in him will endure forever. And then I imagine the pilgrim sitting there on the Mount of Olives and he, he looks up at the other mountains around Jerusalem and he, again, he, he, he just gets another idea. He says, and, and God is still protecting us. God is still around his people here. He hasn't left us. And so it's such an incredible picture of protection of endurance. This is the perspective that we need when it seems that following Jesus really doesn't get you anywhere. We need that long-term perspective. We need to see things through spiritual eyes and say, this is not the final condition. This is temporary. And right now, in the midst of it, God is surrounding us and, and God is protecting us. And notice the particular type of protection that God gives. Precisely how does God protect his people when it seems that the godless are up and the godly are down, when the wicked are up and the righteous are down? What kind of protection is God giving? Well, look at verse 3. He says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. It's not going to be like this forever. And here's why. This is what God is protecting us from. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Interesting, huh? The the danger is that we, living under a corrupt world, would over time become corrupt ourselves. So that God, what he really wants to protect us from, is becoming wicked. (laughs) You know? What, What we often think we want God to protect us from is God... Protect us from higher taxes. You know, God, protect us from filthy music. You know, God, protect us from all... And maybe those are good things we want to be protected from. But what God is really concerned about is us not becoming sinful like the wicked. He wants us to stay trusting Him and to stay holy and to stay godly. That's the point again of this verse. For then the righteous might do, uh, use their hands to do evil. God is more concerned about your holiness than he is about your immediate happiness. We're like, God, protect my job. God, protect my finances. God, protect my house. God, protect my career. God, protect my GPA, Right? And God's like, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't, depending on his purposes. But the thing God is concerned about is my holiness, my obedience, that I would be a righteous person who trusts him. Um, and, and that's important because when wickedness has the upper hand, it has a corrosive, corrupting influence on the people underneath it. I mean, this is the history of Israel over and over again. When they had a righteous king who did... Uh, right in the eyes of the Lord, that righteous king would lead the people and they would follow. But when 
the, uh, the king was evil, he would lead the people and they would follow into wickedness and, and idolatry and breaking God's laws. Um, as the old the ancient Proverbs goes, uh, you know, the fish does rot from the head down. That's why it's important to have godly leaders in place. That's why the most important quality in any leader, say in the church, for example, is that they be godly and righteous and upstanding and Christ-like. The most important thing. Because as goes the leader, so often goes the organization or the followers or the nation. So it's so important to, to have people of character leading. And God wants to protect His people. Those who trust in Him are going to be protected specifically from being led into greater and greater evil because of the corrupting nature of evil. You know, evil in our society is corrupting all of us, attempting to corrupt us in ways that we're not even conscious of. That's the nature of it. You know, sometimes uh, people who aren't Christians complain about Christians, you know, and they say, you know, one of the things I hate about Christians is they're always trying to convert you to Jesus. Just leave me alone. Stop trying to convert me. I don't want to be converted. Well, here's the bad news. You are being converted to something. We're all being converted to something. And when you live in a corrupt society, which all societies are in some way or another, it is converting you. You just don't realize it because everyone else is being converted too. So what you think of as not being converted it just seems like normal to you, but it really is a conversion process taking place. So the question isn't, do you want to be converted or not? The question is, what are you being converted to? Do, do you even realize how many of the things you think, the assumptions you have, that the moral system you have is actually being shaped just by the world in which you live? And we don't even, but it doesn't seem like it because everyone else is being shaped in the same way. So you're like, well, we're all normal. No, you're all being corrupted. <laughs> It just seems normal because you're all being corrupted in the same way. And God protects those who trust him from that kind of corruption. It reminds me of what Jesus prayed for us in John, the Gospel of John. I actually want you to go here. This is a really interesting verse. Put a bookmark, put a bookmark in Psalm 125. We're going to come right back. And turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. That's on page 1071. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. Page 1071. John 17 is a really cool chapter. This is Jesus' final prayer for his disciples right before he went to die on the cross. This is kind of Jesus' parting prayer. So it's very special. It's, It's the longest prayer of Jesus that we have in the Bible. Psalm 17. And look what Jesus prays for his disciples. I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but look at verse 13. Jesus prays to the Father. He's about to die. So he prays in verse 13 of John 17, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, that is the disciples, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from what? The evil one. In other words, from the one who would tempt them to sin. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Think at this, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be made holy. That word sanctified just means to be made holy. So Jesus' prayer for his disciples as he's about to go to die and eventually go back to heaven, he's leaving his disciples there, but his prayer isn't, and Lord, I pray that, that, uh, that you know, they would always be financially on top and their careers would always soar and they would have no health problems and uh, all of their kids would be uh, straight-A students. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't like that. The prayer was, Lord, protect them from sin sanctify them. They are going to go through trials. Jesus promised us that if we follow him, there's going to be testing and trials. But his prayer is that we would be holy, that we would be godly, that we would be people who trust God, and because of that trust, that God's power would keep us from sin, and we would grow in holiness over time. That as we trust God, his power continues to enable us to live the kind of godly life that God wants us to live. And why is it so important that we live a godly life? You know, why is that what Jesus prayed for me? You know, Jesus, I wouldn't have mind if you prayed for, you know, some financial prosperity too. Why did you just pray for sanctification? Why are you praying for that? Why is it this concern that you protect me from sin? Okay, that's great, but I could use some other things too. Well, here's why. It's because someday there is a day of reckoning coming. Someday, God is going to answer that prayer that that guy asked me about in our church. Someday, God is going to straighten everything out, and finally, everything will be put the right way. And the wicked will be put down forever, and those who've trusted God and by his power been kept from sin will be exalted forever. And because that great flip-flop day is coming, the day of judgment, when everything gets put right and realigned, that means the most important thing that you and I can have in this life is faith in Christ that produces holiness. Right? Like, money won't help us on that day. You know, degrees won't help me on that day. Having been a senior pastor, or having been a senior executive, or having been a principal, or having been, you know, student body president, it's not going to really help me if that's all I'm showing before God. What's going to matter is faith in Christ, a real faith that produced a changed life over time. And if I don't have that, then I'm going to be in big trouble when God sets everything right and puts the wicked down and the righteous up. Look back at Psalm 125. That's where the psalm ends. It's a prayer for that day. So here's the psalmist praying in verses 4 and 5 for the day of reckoning, the day of realignment, the day of judgment, when everything is as it should be. Verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with evildoers. Isn't that a terrifying thought, being banished by God? That's what hell is. Hell is the place 
of forever banishment. Depart. So it's so critical that we be a holy people who trust in the Lord because as verse 4 says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good. I want to be good. That's the most important thing is to be on the good side. Now, we have to really define good, of course. You know, what does it mean to be good? Let's make sure we're clear on that. I don't want to just go over that and because we might all think, oh, that's good news because I am good. Whew. You know, well, make sure you're good, right? How do you know if you're good? You know, who's good and who's bad, you know? And what are those categories? You ask the kids in school, you know, who, who are the good kids in class and who are the bad kids? They know. They're like, tick, 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 tick. that's the good and here's the bad. They've, they've categorized themselves morally. Isn't that interesting? We just have this moral awareness. But, but from God's perspective, who is good? What does it take to be a good person who will stand on the judgment day? We really need to make that clear because, because I think it's easy to just assume, well, we're all good. I mean, for crying out loud, we're here in church and it's VBS week and everything's awesome. So, you know, like, what are we, what are we talking about this for? Aren't we all fine? Uh, but, but I think the reason is we, we typically, when we define who's good or what is good, we typically define it by looking sideways or by looking down. So I define good by looking sideways. I look at you and I'm like, oh, you're, you're a pretty good person. and I'm kind of like you. And they're pretty good. And yeah, I'm kind of like them. And if you're still doubting if you're good or not, well, then, then you look down. You're like, and I'm definitely not like that guy. That's a low life. And that guy, whoa, what a dirt bag. I'm not like that. So, okay, well, I, was, I kind of doubted if I was good, but now looking down and sideways, I, th- I think we're okay, we're okay, you're okay. So, you know, just be good, it's fine. really doesn't matter what religion you believe. They all teach the same thing. I love when people say that. All religions basically teach the same thing, just to be good. And, and I'm like, have you ever actually read about any religions? They don't teach the same thing at all. But anyway, people say that. And uh, you can feel free to snicker when they do. That's not what religions teach. It's not just be a nice person. That's, that's our take on it because we don't want to think about it. But, but when the Bible defines good, it doesn't ask us to look down. It doesn't ask us to look sideways. The Bible asks us to look where? Up. We look to God and we go, okay, that's good. God defines good. And when I look that way, then I'm like, <laughs> Houston, I have a problem. Because, first of all, I haven't loved him. If that's good, I should love what's good, and I don't love him the way I should. I haven't obeyed him. I haven't loved my neighbor the way he loves the, my neighbors. And I realize there's a lo- big space between me and good. And so the good are not those who have convinced themselves they're okay. The good are those who trust in the Lord. You've got to define good based on the context. And in Psalm 125, the good are those who trust in the Lord. The good are those who are, they're not the ones who are like, yeah, I'm fine. Trust in myself. No, no. Those who, the good are those who are like, God, I need you. I need your righteousness. I need your power to help me or I'm going to fall off the ledge. I need you. And so it's the person who's trusting in God to strengthen them. And of course, as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, this idea that the righteous are those who trust God, you know, that idea just gets like exploded in the New Testament. And we see that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross 
so that by trusting in him, we can receive his righteousness. We can receive his forgiveness. So, so we find in the New Testament, we see how it all comes together. Oh, that's how the, those who trust in God are good. It's because Jesus has given us his moral perfection, and we've given him our sin on the cross. And so it's only through faith, and now faith in Christ, that you can be good. And it's only by faith that God can keep you living a good life. It's his power that keeps us trusting in Jesus and doing good. And so we're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. It's God's power that holds us together. It's the prayer of Jesus to to sanctify us that keeps us moving forward. And so the good who do good in a way that pleases God are those who live by faith and by trust. Those who are willing to stand for the Lord and trust in the Lord, even when standing for the Lord puts you on the bottom in this world rather than on the top. Because on that day, those who have trusted in Christ will be blessed, and those who haven't, who trust in their own righteousness or whatever, will be told to depart. Let me just take you to one final scripture, and then we'll end the uh, sermon But I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 25. I want to catapult us forward to that great day of reckoning. Matthew 25, it's on page 984. This is a final scene of what it will be like when Jesus returns and this great day of sorting out happens when everything is put right when that longing we have for the godly to be on top and godlessness to be on the bottom will finally come to pass. And Jesus tells us a little story about it. It's the story of the sheep and the goats. Let me read this. I'll just read through it. And, and, and this, this is an interesting passage. This is one of the most commonly misinterpreted passages by preachers and Christians. Very commonly misinterpreted. Let me show you why. Psalm, or rather, Psalm, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, there's the return of Christ, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. At long last, you will be on top. Come into the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Don't remember that exactly. In fact, I think you're in heaven the whole time. How did I do that? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart, banishment, depart from me, 
you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They'll answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's the picture. Judged by our deeds on that day. Good to those who are good. Banishment to those who are not. But this, you've got you to read this passage closely. Like I said, I think this is a very commonly misinterpreted passage. What's the common interpretation of this passage? It goes like this. You need to help those in need. Help the needy. Serve at the homeless shelter. Visit people in the hospital. Do social justice. Care for the downtrodden and the oppressed. And as long as you do that, that's what God's looking for. So the good people are people who help others. That is not what this passage is teaching. Let me be clear. It's good to do those things. I'm not saying don't do those things. In fact, I think Christians should do those things. In fact, Christians down through the centuries have been marked by their care for the poor and their care for those in need. Christians are marked by the ones who are leading the charge to care for uh, you know, uh, th- those who are caught in, you know, sex trafficking and care for the unborn and their rights and, and care for those who are weak and marginalized. Christians have always been at the forefront of caring for those in need. I'm just saying, that's not what this passage is about. Read it closely. Look at verse 40 again. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, What? brothers of mine. In other words, who are in, in Matthew, who are the brothers of Jesus? It's the disciples. So, so it's not just a general care for those in need, although we should do that. What Jesus is saying is, did you stand with and identify with the Christians who were beaten down by the world when they were on the bottom and the wicked were on top? When the common state of affairs was going on, where people who were trying to follow Jesus were oppressed and imprisoned and suffering for their faith, when, when they were down and the, the wicked were up, were, were you like, let's see, do I want to get ahead in the world or would I stand with those losers? I'm going with the losers because I'm standing with Christ. Those are the ones. Those are the ones who are welcomed into the kingdom. Jesus says, whatever you did for them, you did for me, right? So whatever we do for God's people, we're doing for Christ. This is about will we stand with God's people and care for God's people when they are on the bottom, when it's costly to follow Christ, and will we visit them and stand with them, or will we say, no, 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 the, the, way, the way is up, the way is with the wicked, the way is with the worldly in the worldly wise. And likewise, Jesus will say to me, you never visited me. You never took care of me. And they say, what? We, we didn't know. It's like, well, you didn't help those who were following me. 
And so the question is, where do we stand? Are we with those who trust in Jesus, even when it's going to make us at the bottom, suffering and sick and naked and in prison? Or will we stand with the world and those who think that the way up is, is through power and in all the ways the world tells us is up? Are we willing to identify? Because remember that the, the king who will judge on that day is Jesus. And Jesus was down before he was up, right? The greatest, most intense moment in human history of the righteous being down and the wicked being up was when Jesus was hanging on the cross. You want to know when it was the most glaring contrast between the wicked up and the righteous down? It's when Jesus was dying on the cross, You don't get lower than the cross. You don't get more righteous than Jesus. And and you don't get more power over somebody than nailing them to a cross. Jesus was down to the cross to pay for our sins. And, And so if we're not willing to stand with him and to walk that path and to trust him, even if it costs us much in this world, and even if that means we've got to come alongside suffering Christians and say, I'm with them. I'm not with them. I'm with them. And even if that costs us something, that's the path of salvation. It's the path of the cross to trust in Christ and to walk that path with him. And so glory in your suffering. Glory in your Redeemer. Glory in the King who went low to save us. And when you look at the world and you see the wicked are up and the righteous are down and and you're trying to follow Christ, don't get mad. Just say, This is the way of the cross. This is the way of the cross. And remember that after the cross comes the resurrection and the ascension and the crown and the kingdom forever. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning, the King who laid aside his crown to take up a cross. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be willing to stand with you, that we would be willing to to identify with you and with your brothers and your sisters, especially those who are low for their faith, people that the world does not acknowledge as important. Lord, help us to say we're with them because we're with Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for any brothers and sisters here today who are suffering acutely because of their stand for you, because of their willingness. Lord, I pray for, for teenagers here who are, who are socially marginalized at school because they won't party and they won't, they won't live the world's way. Lord, I just pray that you would help them to stand strong in faith. And I pray, Lord, that the other kids in the youth group would say, I'm with them. I'm with the social losers who are following Christ. God, I pray for, for anyone here who's, who in their workplace or in other places feels like they are they're down and they're not making progress because they're trying to be faithful to you, Lord. I pray that you'd keep them strong. Help them not to be discouraged. Help them not to, to feel that they've chosen the wrong path, but help them to see that those who trust in the Lord will endure like Mount Zion. And God, give us a long-term view. Help us to see that the most important thing is faith and obedience that that is what will cause us to stand on the judgment day. Lord, just keep that eternal vision in front of our eyes. Help us not to think that this brief 
50, 60, 70, 80 years in this world is what's important. But Lord, what's important is following you during this 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Oh God, keep us faithful, we pray. Strengthen this church. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, as we take communion, as we remember your death and resurrection for us, I pray that you would just draw us close to the cross, take us down to the cross to stand with you and to put our faith in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.